Okay, everybody, welcome to Investing with IBD podcast sponsored by Vantage Point. It's Wednesday, July 7th, 2021, and I'm your host, Justin Nielsen. And on today's show, we have Jason Thompson. He's a portfolio manager for O'Neill Global Advisors. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks for having me on, Justin. Excited to be here. Absolutely. You know what? I can't believe you've been a frequent uh, contributor on IBD Live. Um, I mean, heck, we got to know each other a few years ago when you were working at MarketSmith. Um, I, I couldn't believe that this is your first time on the podcast. So I'm glad to be, uh, be the one introducing you uh, in, into this. So on today's podcast, of course, we're going to dive into the markets. But uh, one of the things that has always struck me about Jason is he's got this very uh, disciplined, data-driven approach. So we're going to talk about his approach um, how he quantifies patients and you know, get into some of the ways that he evaluates companies, the metrics that he uses, and how he gets uh, over that cognitive bias. And then as always, we're going to talk a little bit about a few stock ideas, uh, some of the things that Jason is taking a look at. Um, so we'll get into that. But first, let's talk about the markets. Now, uh, the NASDAQ composite has been just pushing uh, to new highs and it's one of the things that, I mean, we really like to see when the NASDAQ gets to those new highs. It crossed above 14,000. And now, as opposed to the February and in April and May, uh, this time it's staying above that 14,000 level. So what's your take on the market right now, Jason? Um, in general, you know, the market, so we had a phenomenal year last year, right? Uh, the yeah. market started off strong. And then in February, the, market, the NASDAQ started to correct. It started to correct from basically February to June. So, you know, give or take four or five months as that, which is a, it's a healthy and normal correction. And then as the market was correcting, you had a lot due to correlations, you had a lot of these sectors, you know, specifically the one that I track the most like technology to correct with it. Um, so there's a couple of points there. One is that the, the general hypothesis or assumption was when the market breaks out or if it does break out into a new high, we would want to see some of these risk on sectors and industry groups to make a new high as well. Uh, so the additional assumption would be if the market makes a new high, we would want to see technology make a new high within that. And then that, an additional layer on top of that is we would want to see, you know, some of these, you know, high performing growth companies to also make a new high along with that. That would just give us a better signal that, you know, that uptrend is, is going to be strong and hopefully have a, a sustainable rally underneath it. Yeah. So to that degree, did you kind of, get exactly what you were looking for? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was going to resolve either, you know, one way or the other, right? Uh, we're always kind of positioning ourselves for the next potential move. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in terms of my investing mandate and style, I have the luxury and freedom to get ahead of these moves a little bit, um, you know, earlier uh, than some other institutional investors, which is really nice. So yeah, as the market is correcting, you know, we have a list of our top uh, fundamentally strong companies or highest conviction companies that we'd want to invest in. And as soon as we start to receive uh, positive uh, signals from the market, we started to increase, or especially myself, has started to increase uh, our equity exposure. What were some of those early signals that you saw that maybe started cluing you in, hey, it's, it's okay to start dipping my toes a little bit deeper into this water uh, instead of uh, maybe waiting on the sidelines with some extra cash? Yeah, actually, one of them, uh, Justin, you know this one uh, well. It's the first time that I actually looked at it pretty uh, uh, closely. Here is that the heavy volume down without further price progress. Right. Um, so we saw a lot of these big liquid leaders 
um, sell off hard. And then towards like the bottom of the base uh, or a, a base building process, you saw a lot of volume come in, but the price was, you know, not going lower, which is showing us that there is some type of institutional demand supporting the stock. And this isn't just off any stock. These are stocks that are fundamentally strong that we believe that, you know, should, you know, have a sustainable rally underneath it. Uh, an additional thing that we look at, or specifically myself, is buying stocks near the bottom of a base or as stocks are rounding out the right side of the base. There's a couple of different factors that we look for. Um, and we just started to see that as the market was bottoming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we'll definitely get into that approach because, again, uh, for, for those that follow uh, can slim, you know, and and all the base patterns that we look at, that's a little bit different, um, but you have some very good reasons for why you do that. One more factor I wanted to get into with the market, and, uh, you know, you mentioned how the NASDAQ had, had was going through this correction, but one of the things that was so different, I guess, uh, about this was the way that the S&P 500 was going to new highs uh, this entire time. So the NASDAQ is is correcting, and You've got the S&P 500 kind of pushing to new highs and and not really showing as much of a correction. Sure, you had uh, you know a couple a couple moves to the 50-day moving average line, but it bounced very quickly. So again, just to put in perspective, this is that February you know time period, February to June correction that was happening in the Nasdaq, but the S&P 500 was just uh, you know moving so strongly forward and you know kind of creating this bifurcation of you know. Uh, a lot of the cyclical plays, oils, financials, the materials, steel, all of these, you know, not not our typical technology growth, exciting uh, things to play. So how, how are you handling that? Yeah, I mean, I think there is two different camps. One is that, um, you know, as, so that's some people, you have to think about, I guess I'll backtrack for one second. We have to think about what makes up the weights of the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 first, right? right? So if a lot of the cyclical companies, oil companies, financials are performing well or outperforming relative towards those newer growth companies, then intuitively it would make sense for um, the S&P 500 to perform uh, a little bit better or at least diverge or have a positive divergence from the NASDAQ. Um, the, the, the process or the assumption was that if the inflation, if the inflation stocks continue to perform well, or cyclical stocks continue to perform well, then you will have that that divergence will even widen even more so than it is. And then it's just if you look back historically um, and look at for our baseline or base case scenario, that doesn't tend to happen too often. So the other side of that was okay, we might have some type of consolidation into uh, with the S and P 500. So what that really means is. The inflation stocks that have been forming, uh, performing very well this year and the cyclical stocks that have been performing well this year will probably take a pause and we'll have a rotation into outside groups. Outside groups, you know, one of them, uh, just the easiest one to pick on is technology and technology is heavily weighted in the NASDAQ. So right. then you would start to see that rotation back into those stocks here. And then the, the fundamental reason behind that was that, okay, if inflation is not going to be as big of a deal as the market is pricing in or perceiving, then it would warrant, um, you know, an outperformance of growth going forward, meaning cyclical stocks would start to sell off and then you would have, you would start to have some accumulation in the technology sector. Mm -hmm. So one more thing, uh, just to kind of wrap a bow on this, uh, you know, this talk on the major indexes, at least, um, you know, you mentioned how you were kind of looking for this rotation back to risk on. Um, a lot of times we think of the Russell 2000 
as kind of being a, uh, a, a gauge of whether there's risk on behavior, um, that's kind of been flat uh, a little bit lately. So is that something that's bothering you? Or is the fact that the technology is you know, working right now uh, kind of saying, hey, this is, this is maybe uh, not as concerning? Um, so there's a couple different aspects of that. One it's you know, I, I know growth managers like to look at the Russell because it has a high R squared towards active management, meaning if the Russell is performing well, you might have a stronger ability to select stocks and generate alpha. So stock picking like canceling methods would perform well. Um, the other side of that is, you know, I invest for, or I invest institutional capital for um, a family office and also now a, a public fund. So what that means is I have to follow our mandate and our mandate is very, you know, liquid and, and growth driven and, you know, tends to have a bias towards technology. So a lot of the small cap or even some of the, you know, maybe borderline mid cap stocks that are, are made up of the Russell, they're not going to be in my investing universe uh, to begin with. So uh, when push comes to shove, if, you know, my liquid stocks or companies are performing well, I, you know, I'm going to increase my allocation uh, towards that. Um, it's not to say I don't look at, you know, everything that goes in the market, because I definitely do in terms of like fixed income currencies and everything along that end. Um, but those are, you know, secondary signals and secondary aspects that we look at. Mm -hmm. Well, and to a certain degree, I mean, we, you know, we were talking about the major indexes here, but, you know, it's not just about the major indexes for you. You really do kind of that drill down into, hey, what groups are, are moving? So what, what are some of the other indicators, you know, some of these secondary indicators, I guess, uh, as that you mentioned, um, how do you kind of do your analysis of where the market is at beyond just the general market indexes, I guess? Yeah, uh, good question and great point, Justin. Uh, some of the things that I look at to get a better understanding of, you know, market direction is, one of the lists that we have in, uh, or that I have in Panerai, or just one of my investing platforms, is basically a factory. And Panerai is the institutional product um, of William O'Neill and Company that you use. Right. So it's basically a fact. It's a exactly. It's basically a factory list, and it looks at, you know, for example, all the different factors that are in the market. So momentum, growth, value, quality, um, all, all of those things. So. Generally, so what that means is if, if value is outperforming in the last quarter, it's been you know, on the top of the screen, meaning it's been performing the best relative, then I'm going to know growth is probably suffering and then momentum is probably suffering. And then the basket of stocks within the, that, meaning the stocks that canceling that are correlated to that, they're probably not performing as well. Um, and then I look at just general um, assets and, and sectors. So you know, if oil, if the oil sector is doing very well or if housing is doing very well, it might come at the expense of growth in some, to some degree. And then an additional, you know, indicator or way I look to look at the market is not necessarily the, um, the general indices, but I, I do look at that, of course, the NASDAQ, S&P and Russell and that, but more of just sectors and going across sectors and seeing how they're performing and how that's tying into the equity markets. Um, that's generally what I look, like to look at as a primary uh, resource towards market direction. And are you using ETFs to kind of gauge that? Or are you just kind of looking at your, uh, your list of stocks and seeing, oh, okay, this is where the movement is, you know, based on, okay, this is, you know, I, I'm seeing a lot of movement here to the positive side, a lot of movement here to the negative side. Where, where are those and, and grouping it that way? So which, which do you prefer? Right. So I, I have a, I do all of that with a lens through ETFs as well, just to get a quick sense. Right. But in terms of, so I have a core coverage list that, you know, I, 
I invest off that has about 50 stocks in it. Our institutional list has much more stocks to be able to choose from. But just generally, you know, I follow 50 companies that I try to know very, very well, more like a business analyst. And then so when I sort those companies every day from best performing to worst performing, one of the columns I look at is sector, um, industry group, liquidity, market cap, and all of that. So just by generally looking at that, uh, that list every day, you could see what is performing the best and what is performing the worst. So for example, if a lot of if mega cap stocks are on the top of the list that, you know, it's probably coming at the expense towards small cap. And that means the Russell might be underperforming or if at the top of the list, it's all technology, then that probably means, you know, the other end of the spectrum is what is underperforming. So by looking at that, you get a, not only a good intuitive feel of the market, but also, you know, where, um, you know, the accumulation is going in the market. Sounds good. Well, we're going to get a lot more into this data-driven approach that Jason uses for his own investing, uh, how he invests the assets that are under his charge, um, and also how he quantifies patients. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Do you want to conquer market volatility? We can help you protect your hard-earned capital. Visit www.freestockcoaching.com and find out how Vantage Point's AI technology can forecast stock market trends up to 72 hours in advance with incredible accuracy. Vantage Point's patented technology analyzes huge quantities of global data in seconds, so you can finally stop guessing what's going to happen next. Check out www.freestockcoaching.com and experience Vantage Point for free. Learn how successful traders generate their wealth. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. Welcome back to Investing with IBD podcast sponsored by Vantage Point. I'm your host, Justin Nielsen, and I'm joined by Jason Thompson, an O'Neill Global Advisors Portfolio Manager who's joining me this week. And before the break, we were talking about the general market and how Jason kind of gets a little bit deeper looking at sectors and industry groups, um, you know, different factor analysis to see where the money is moving. So, Jason, you know, what is your next step? Uh, when, when do you decide, okay, now I'm going to start putting my money here in these areas uh, where I see that movement happening? Or, you know, what kind of indicators are you looking at to, to make those decisions? Right. Um, so it's probably a fairly lengthy answer, but uh, generally- We got we, the time, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, so generally we use the O'Neill methodology, right? Which is a process already in itself. And then that's going to, you know, Presumably, to answer your question, it's going to narrow down the investing universe from 7,000 stocks plus and the NASDAQ to a few hundred stocks. And then your question specifically saying, you know, after we have this basket of a couple hundred stocks, how do you decide which companies to invest in and which one to pass on? Um, what I use is um, a process that I have developed. It's just more of a fundamental based process that goes through. It's like a checklist approach. It's kind of like a, what Bill would say in terms, Bill O'Neill would say in terms of like a fighter pilot, you don't take off in, term, in terms of before you go down and answer right. um, all of that checklist. So I have everything of that that breaks down, you know, the three point statements, whether it's an, uh, the income statement, cash flow or balance sheet, and then go into like a lot of um, tangible quantitative measurements that are correlated to the stock price. So, so specific KPIs that are, um, you know, known to, be correlated and to move the stock price. Right. So that's one way. APIs being key performance indicators. and Right, just like two or three metrics mm -hmm. that are 100% core are mainly correlated to the stock price that you could measure, identify, and quantify. Um, and then just track those over time to see you know, um, how, how it's performing relative towards your, your general thesis. 
Um, but you know what we're talking about maybe it was offline earlier, Justin, is that the more years that I invest in the market, the more I switch from being a stock picker towards a business analyst, right? Mm -hmm. So I think in the initially maybe over a decade ago, I was equally weighting technicals and fundamentals or that just naively. But as you gain more experience and um, learn to invest a, a little bit better, you start to, or at least you start to adapt your approach. And one of the uh, ways that I've adapted is just to weight more on fundamentals because, you know, when we do our post analysis every year and we're, um, we review of how we made money and how we lost money and we have a process that tracks that, a lot of the times it came into, you know, going towards this high conviction, fundamentally strong companies. And so what I do is I develop a core coverage list that has about 50 securities, 30 of them I know very, very well. I try to know those companies, you know, as good, if not better than anyone else. And then the other 20 in the list is kind of what I'm grooming to, and that hopefully perform well enough that I can get to the point to where I know them like the basket of 30. Um, so I try to take more of a, a business analyst approach on that, meaning really understanding the company, understanding, um, you know, thematically over the next uh, three to five years, where this group, where this sector, where this theme should be going. And then within that theme, uh, you know, which company should uh, capture the most market share relative to that TAM, and then just look at the various different opportunities within that. Um, and it's like, you know, Bill would say, you know, in terms more of adapting my approach, it's like Bill would say, you know, a company doesn't uh, double or triple because of the stock chart, it doubles or triple because of the underlying company. So what we see is every cycle or every decade, you have about three or 4% of the investing universe that goes on to be these model book stocks where they double, triple, uh, et cetera there. And those companies basically follow a, a similar path. And it's that if a company is generating revenue, they're expanding the profit margins and they're putting off enough sufficient free cash flow, all the while increasing earnings, then the stock price will generally follow um, the company results. And then, so that's what we try to identify over each cycle. Yeah. And I, what a lot of people don't realize is, you know, you don't need your portfolio full of all of these. I mean, it's great if you can, but man, if you can just get, you know, one or two uh, of these, I mean, that can be life-changing in terms of what it does for your portfolio if you handle them right. Yeah, that's why position sizing is key. Um, yeah, I'll, 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 I agree with that and I'll reiterate, um, you know, after every year, we try to at least have one or two of the best performing stocks. Uh, we really aim for a three, but mm -hmm. if you if you could have one or two, you're going to have usually a pretty good well a year a year if you weight those accordingly. Right. Um, and you know, we could talk all day about position sizing. <laughs> Whenever I get a chance to uh, meet with any like prominent investors, the first question I ask, I raise my hand, is you know, how do you think of position sizing versus carrying notational, you know, all of that that goes on to it. So I think if you do have the ability to, you know, to get into these companies, you have to make sure you position um, the bet towards where it's going to be meaningful at the end of the year. Yeah. And what, what a lot of people, you know, just to get back to one of the points you made here, um, a lot of people as they're, as they're looking at investors business daily and, you know, the stuff that we talk about, uh, it, there is a lot of chart centric stuff that we talk about, but at the end of the day, a lot of it does come down to the fundamentals. Bill O'Neill himself, the founder of Investors Business Daily, used to say, look, 75 to 80% of his decision-making was based on the fundamental story. And you mentioned, you know, kind of your, your checklist of things that you, you look at. So beyond, I guess, the, the metrics that you maybe get from the 10K, the 10Q, 
Um, what, what kind of stuff are you reading to do some of this analysis to kind of understand the runway or the trends that are happening? And you know, what people may not realize, I mean, you used to work very closely with Bill's son, Scott O'Neill, and uh, a lot of his presentations, I mean, you were, the, you were the one that was kind of doing the grunt work behind the scenes, uh, you, know, you know, tell me everything I need to know about autonomous driving or, you know, or, you know uh, artificial intelligence. So what, what sources do you go to to kind of educate yourself on these trends? Because it's, be, it's hard to know all this stuff. I mean, it's complicated stuff, but what, what do you use to follow those trends? Um, I mean, look, I think every investor should start with a company's uh, investor's presentation. You have to at least begin with that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to give you a good overview and a good set, a sense of, you know, what, what the company is doing. And then within that, you should have some general thesis if you agree with it or not, right? Um, you know, I, my mandate is heavily weighted with technology. So as I look at these investors' decks, um, you know, especially technology companies, they tend to be overly optimistic. Right. You know, I'm pretty comfortable these days where I could call, you know, BS on a company if they're going to be able to achieve those results or not mm-hmm. um, fairly quickly, just because I've looked at thousands of, of them. I also think, I mean, just to hit the, um, the basics, you have to read the annual reports of every company. Um, you're not really going to know a company unless you every do. company in your core, you know, <laughs> your, yeah, your, yeah. your core coverage. And that's how you get to know them well is because you're, yeah. you're going to that deep level. On and, and at the end of the day, it's like, why are we, why are we even doing this? We're doing it because we need to build our conviction in a company. That's basically what it comes down to. And you're not going to be able to hold a company through a drawdown or a base or over an investing cycle or hold it for one, two, or even three years. Um, if you don't have a lot of conviction in it. And just from my ability, from my investing perspective, I can't build conviction just because the chart looks nice because one day it's going to look really, really bad. And so one way to help me overcome, you know, selling them um, too soon or at the lows or anything like that is just to be able to understand the company fundamentally. And then more importantly, it's what we touched on earlier is to be able to tell, well, is this fitting my thesis or not? And, you know, having the ability Ability to measure that makes it a lot less stressful in the, in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, to, I guess to go back to your questions, you have to start with investors, deck the quarterly filings, the annual filings. Um, even uh, expert call transcripts are really good. Uh, they used to be really bad, but now some of them are, are, are really nice. Um, brokerage reports from the typical uh, bold brackets are good. And some of the boutique banks are uh, boutique firms. And then also our institutional side, William O'Neill covers uh, a lot of these stocks that we follow or companies that we follow. And we have our own internal analyst team. So, right. you know, from my angle, I have a lot of resources, you know, basically unlimited that I want to, um, if I want to find out something on a company, I could find out about it. Yeah, the, the, the limited resource is the time to read it all, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now, uh, as you kind of get this, you know, depth of knowledge behind you and, and this understanding of, of what, the, what the company does, um, you know, there, there is this, I guess what a lot of people look at is this whole valuation idea. You know, they have their valuation models, you know, a lot of analysts, you know, the, the upgrades and downgrades are often on valuation. Are you... Are you looking at valuation itself um, or is there something that's more important to you? No, I think valuation should be a primary concern for most investors. Um, I think the way of looking at a a valuation on a company is going to be entirely different um, from investor investor. I don't think you could just take a a linear multiple and expand it out and say, this is like our basic price target. That's Mm -hmm. not the way businesses operate. 
Um, I think you have to look at valuation relative to sectors, markets, historicals. You know, that's a, a good place to start is like, okay, what is statistically the base case scenario for a company like this or a model like this? And then be able to plug in a couple of uh, key metrics to identify um, upside and downside with, within that. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that we were talking about is, again, you have a very data-driven approach. And one of the things that you mentioned is um, to a certain degree, again, because you've got this longer term time frame, you're talking, you know, three, five years down the road. Um, how is it that you quantify patients? Uh, explain, explain what you mean by that a little bit. Right. So I think if you look at patients, you could probably bucket it into a couple of different categories. One is, you, and, and, and to answer your question, you know, in terms of holding a stock, look, I would love to hold a stock for a couple of years. I haven't had the ability to do that. I've held uh, several for a year or two, but nothing, you know, too much further uh, beyond that, um, or maybe like two and a half uh, years. I'd love to be able to get to that five-year target, but mm -hmm. that's, that's easier said than done, right? So I think one one of the ways that goes into that is being able to have patience within a stock or, or within a company, being able to hold it. And so if we look at historically, again, we'd like to start with our base case scenario. Historically, what does a typical stock um, holding period look at optimally. So we have these internal model book stocks that tracks every year in each cycle. I think the market Smith version is like top stocks. We have our own version on, on the institutional side, but basically it's, they'll tell you, or I'll show you at the end, what is an optimal holding period? So we know generally for our style on an internal basis, it's around 15 months, but it can also grow to 24 months. If a couple signals or conditions are met. So we know if I want to hold a stock and I want it to double or to triple, and I want it to fit a model book stock type of move or vice versa, then that means I'm probably going to have to hold it for a year or two. It's going to be hard to find a stock that doubles or triples in less than a year. Um, well, last so, year being the exception. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> last year was an anomalous function where everyone and you know everyone's cousin, mother, and that made a triple digit year. But right. Um, which is good because we follow a system and it worked and everyone, you know, did well. So that's, that's great. But, you know, on those non or those average years, so to speak, we want to be able to hold a stock, you know, for the optimal move, which again is 15 or 24 months. So I think that's a part of that goes into patience is if you want to hold a stock for a long time, you, you kind of just have to, you know, be able to hold it. And what goes into being able to hold it is you have to have a systematic process in place that, as it allows you, and more importantly, to have the ability to hold uh, hold a, a company. So, what does that mean? An ability to hold a company should be based off of you know your position size. Um, I think Scott O'Neill uses analogy. It's kind of position size is kind of like a marathon where you know if you have your shoes too big or too small, you're not going to be able to complete the race. You right. Know, Bill, Bill would say, as you know, Justin, a cardinal investing sin is having your best performing stock being your smallest weight. Right. You know, that is like something we just can't get away with, um, um, especially with our allocators. They're just not going to tolerate that. So we need to be able to have a position size that matches our level of conviction and that also will allow us to hold the stock. So if I have a huge position, I'm not going to have the patience to be able to you know, actually hold that stock and let it develop um, materially into our thesis because I'm just not going to be able to um, hold it from, um, you know, a portfolio level. And then I think the third aspect is, you know, in addition to like the quantitative model books and having a systematic process in place around patients, is it gets into like the behavioral category. Right. And, then, and yeah, and I, I think every year we do our post analysis and 
we look at everything that we made money and lost money in. And a lot of times it just goes down to these biases that we had. And then we say, okay, we bucket the biases down into uh, cognitive, which are, you know, can be fixed and behaviorally, which are a little bit more challenging. So I think, you know, at the end of every year and, you know, doing this for like 11 or 12 years now is you're able to find and spot your certain biases that you tend to have. And then you create rules in place to help minimize those. And right. then a lot, a lot of it is geared towards, you know, just um, being able to have patience and, and things like that. So I think the summary is patience involves, you know, quantitative aspect like model books, a systematic process that's going to allow you to, you know, get into these stocks and be able to hold them. And then third is a behaviorally just knowing yourself and what you're going to be able to hold and not hold. Yeah. And, and again, that's where that post analysis really comes in very strong. Not only do you do the post analysis on your own trades, that's important, but you should do a post analysis on different cycles, as you mentioned, kind of having that historical, um, I guess, model of what these look like. And, you know, I, I tell people, look, the, the first place you should look is just take a look at, you know, how to make money in stocks, the fourth edition, chapter one, 100 charts going back to 1890, start there. And I mean, that's going to give you a good sense of, hey, this is, this is what these stocks look like, because I don't care if you're looking at a railroad stock from the early 1900s, or a steel stock, you know, you know, air, airliner, uh, you know, jet engines, all of that, internet companies, the, the charts look very similar. That growth um, that you see visually looks, looks very similar. So if you can kind of understand what kind of ride you're in for, uh, it makes a big difference. But you, you also, I, I think, touched on this idea of your own personal uh, post-analysis so that you can understand the mistakes that you're making, you know, maybe that you're not aware of. Has there ever been any, anything that in particular that surprised you uh, learning about yourself, like maybe early on? Yeah, I mean, uh, every year, right? There's a, a ton of <laughs> things that we learn. Um, so we, we have an internal tool that tracks all the data about all of our managers. So using myself, every statistical uh, function or ratio or anything that I would want to measure is being measured and it's being quantified and it's tracked daily. It's going back to the inception of my, inception of my career. Mm -hmm. So it makes it really easy to be able to learn and spot things where, um, you know, like the old way of doing is, okay, we would bucket our categories of stocks where we made money in, lost money in. We would mark up on the chart, what type of pattern was it? Uh, where you Maybe look at the top out. 10, top, you know, top 10 losses, top 10 gains. Right. And we would, we would uh, correlate what was average earnings, market cap, liquidity, and all that stuff. So we just have a tool that does that instantaneously now. Mm -hmm. Every quarter, we're able to have these really fast feedback loops, um, you know, be able to, to learn certain things. Um, I, I, think the, I think the thing about post-analysis is the, the big breakthrough for me, honestly, it was a couple of years ago where maybe it was four or five years ago where I just looked, I, I separated my post analysis into three aspects. So it was fundamental, technical, because it's within our mandate and third is a behavioral aspect. So I looked at fundamentally over the last, you know, I think at the time it was like seven or something years. What do the stocks look like fundamentally that I've made money in? Mm -hmm. And then I started to look at all those aspects. And then technically, or from the technical aspect, I did the same thing. Um, you know, was I buying, was I making money buying breakouts? Not really. Was I making money buying pullbacks, like short pullbacks? Not really. What I was making, and I mean by that, was I over 50% and below 50% hit rate. So yeah. what I found that had a materially positive hit rate was buying stocks, you know, near the lows of the base or on the right side of the base, 
that were our O'Neill methodology type of stocks, but stocks that I just knew very, very well. And that goes into the conviction aspects. And then behaviorally, just going into some of the things that, um, you know, that goes into the type of the market. Am I selling too soon or too late? Am I I'm a loss aversion bias? Like all these different things. Um, so I think every investor should probably do that every year, or at least do one big post analysis to know, you know, quantitatively, where are you making money and where are you losing money? Um, that, that would provide probably a lot of value uh, towards most investors. Yeah. And again, even if you don't have all those uh, statistics uh, at your fingertips that you do, uh, going through the process uh, just in any way you can. I mean, I use Excel myself. Um, it, it, it really helps. So when we come back uh, from the break, we're going to get into some stock ideas so people can maybe understand a little bit about how you go through the process and some stocks that might still have some runway left in them. Stay tuned. Do you feel like you're always late to the best trades? You don't have to kick yourself for those missed opportunities any longer. Today is your day. Vantage Point's artificial intelligence has helped traders of all experience levels with its predictive analysis forecasting. Visit www.freestockcoaching.com and find out how their AI automatically recognizes global market patterns well ahead of the news to help you pick the best trade. Go to www.freestockcoaching.com to join a free live training session today. Vantage Point's patented artificial intelligence can give you a massive edge. Don't hesitate. Save your seat now. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. Welcome back to Investing with IBD, sponsored by Vantage Point. It's Justin Nielsen here, your host, and I am joined this week by Jason Thompson, O'Neill Global Advisors Portfolio Manager. And before the break, we were talking about some of these fundamental characteristics that Jason is looking at to make his determinations of the stocks that he wants to be invested in. And it's a really uh, small list when you consider how many stocks are out there. You know, he really gets to know uh, a very select few. So maybe what we could do is um, maybe we could take a look at one of the ideas that's on uh, Jason's radar right now. Um, how about Shopify, Jason? The, the big break with Shopify is that, and this goes back to the original investing deck, that they said that they're going to democratize the way small business is conducted. So very mm -hmm. simply, everyone knows a story on this, but I provide a little bit more insight is that, you know, Shopify wanted to be able to where anyone that could have a physical store, like a brick and mortar, um, be able to go online within, you know, essentially 30 minutes or an hour. And what they'll do is they'll take care of everything. They'll take care of all the backend the, um, software that goes into it. They'll get into um, SEO, accounting, uh, taxes, all of this stuff, what items are selling the best, worst, and all of that. So um, they really have a, a strong market share and a competitive advantage in doing that. Um, you know, the market cap now is like around 170 billion. Uh, I, you know, a couple of years ago, it obviously was much less, I, right. but that doesn't mean I don't think the stock can, um, you know, double for here. I, you know, I think it's probably within the next like three to five years, a $500 billion company. And it's just going to be, um, the reason that they're, they're going to be able to do that is they're going to continue. And this goes into, you know, some of the factors that we're discussing before, like measurable factors is how many merchants are going to be able to enter their platform and how much revenue or um, GMV that they're going, gross merchandise and value of the, what's on their platform, how are they gonna be able to grow that and expand that? Mm -hmm. um, and so like just one of these things recently, which, um, which the market definitely didn't price in uh, correctly because that's why the stock was up the last couple of weeks was that all the developers on their platform or merchants on their platform 
they're going to offer um, reduced rates or essentially a zero rate of revenue share on the first million that they have. And that's going to reset every year. So that's okay. kind of like the most recent. Um, that's, prob that's probably the, one of the most recent catalysts. But again, getting into like a KPI is just seeing how many, and these are just the, the key metrics that we're looking at is like how many merchants are on the platform What's the growth rate of those merchants? Are they staying? Are they able to, you know, cross sale like a, a, another company would be able to? What's the retention of that? Mm -hmm. um, and how are they going to be able to monetize that? So for Shopify, it's pretty clear. One of the sticking points that they want, you know, we talk about like the competitive advantage of a company is how sticky is their price? Meaning, can someone easily move from Shopify onto another platform and be able to, you know, move their business. And, right. you know, it's a little bit difficult to do that, but what made it even more difficult to make those customers stick is that it basically said, and just to reiterate is, you know, your first million bucks, we're going to uh, do a 0% revenue share on that. And uh, that's going to be an incentive for developers to get on the platform and to, to design all of these things. Um, and then, and then once they're successful, then it's a win-win for, for both parties. <laughs> and, and then it's just like the Amazon approach. And, and in fact, this, the CEO tweeted it that, you know, um, it's about the, and, and it's not, it's at the expense of like, or it's your increased margin is all of our opportunity. Because remember mm -hmm. back, Bezos said your margin is all of our opportunity and basically put the world on notice where Toby, he said the same thing, but he quoted that and just put mm -hmm. increased and that's by, and that's the, and the reason for that is exactly what you said. You want the customers on it. Once they're on it, then we'll figure out um, about how to monetize it. And it kind of goes back even further than that. I'm just thinking of this now, but it's kind of like the Steve Wynn. If you bolt it, they'll come. They're taking like a similar approach is come to our platform and we'll figure out how to generate revenue there. Okay. So let's, let's get into the chart a little bit here, because as you mentioned, um, this, this has been a huge increase in terms of its market cap. And, uh, you know, we're showing the monthly, you know, so for those of you that are listening to the audio version, um, just imagine something going at a very steep angle, you know, <laughs> to, you know, up and to the right, you know, up and to the right. I mean, this is, um, you know, was, was trading at around $40, uh, you know, uh, in 2016, um, you know, coming out of that, that correction, uh, and, you know, now, now it's up close to, you know, over 1500. So, um, you know, a lot of people would look at this and say, oh man, the, the move is over, you know, it, it, it's done. But again, your fundamental analysis is kind of telling you a different story. When, when did this first get on your radar? Um, maybe 2017. Okay. Around 2017. Yeah. The first, the first initial leg I missed, um, mm -hmm. at the time I, you know, I know my portfolio very well because it was a phenomenal year for us. It was Square, PayPal, and Baba in 2017, and that was my core portfolio. Um, and then also at Shopify at the time, the revenue numbers and everything were just a little bit more spotty. So in terms of like coming on, on our institutional list and, list and being a, an investable candidate, um, it, it was not as clear cut uh, for me back then. But mm -hmm. yeah, generally around that. And and even that, I mean, again, you look at a, a price move from 40 to 160, and you got to imagine how many people were thinking, oh, this move is done, right? You know, you did that in uh, just a, you know, two, three years time. But again, you know, Shopify showed that it had much more uh, gas in the tank, I guess you could say. Now, getting to the fundamentals a little bit, um, you know, I'm, I'm showing that it, it looks like, I mean, you've got triple digit earnings growth here. You've got triple digit revenue growth. Um, you know, this is, this has got a high composite rating, the EPS growth rate of 165%. I, I mean, a lot of these, you know, really phenomenal 
phenomenal numbers, but you know, some of the estimates have been a little going forward. Is that something that you're concerned about at all? Um, if I believe them, it would, it would be. <laughs> okay. I, I, so I, why don't you believe the estimates? Yeah, let me explain why, right? Okay. Um, so one, just historically, management understates the um, their, earning, their earnings uh, factors and their street misperceives it materially. So what that means is the earning surprise, which is what the company reports versus the estimates has been materially off. If you look at it, you know, the last like 10 quarters, They've beaten, they've beaten on the upside by a couple hundred percent. Um, mm -hmm. So I think, you know, just from a base case scenario, what management does and what the street price is in um, is not being perceived uh, correctly right now. And then also getting into these earnings numbers, you know, right now they're in their like build out phase with a lot of the um, their distribution channels um, very easily. And it's like what um, Amazon was able to do. It's very easily they're going to be able to flip a few switches or meaning, you know, uh, soften those line items or those deductions on those um, financial statements to be able to be more um, um, EPS positive. Uh -huh. So I think, um, you know, in terms of just the two factors of one, the earning surprises is, is, is always to the upside on this, meaning that they're, they're continually to beat their earnings estimates. So those light or those soft earnings estimates or those negative earning estimates moving forward will actually going to turn positive. And then to even, you know, turn more positive, I think, you know, they're going to be able to, um, they're going to be able to. Um, take advantage of some of their um, financial uh, analysis, analysis metrics to be able to, um, like, a, meaning not invest as heavily in the distribution channels over the next couple of uh, quarters. And that's going to go back and that's going to flow to the bottom line, back to their earnings. And also, I think, you know, the, the move that they just uh, did, just to talk about it again, to get more merchants on their platforms and more developers, they're going to be able to generate more revenue. So they're going to, the revenue of Shopify is going to continue to grow. And it's going to continue to expand. And I, and I know it's already high right now for what the, the street is considering, but I think it's that variant view is I think it's going to be even higher than what the uh, street is pricing in. And then if they're generating that high of uh, revenue, then their earnings are going to come in um, shortly after that. Mm -hmm. So now looking uh, again, back at the chart, um, on MarketSmith, you know, we're seeing a pattern recognition um, here, you know, showing a cup and, you know, we hover over that. The cup depth was 33%. Uh, so that's the kind of correction that we had in Shopify while the NASDAQ was correcting. So that's, that's pretty in line. Um, and it looks like we had a little tight area here. We broke out of that tight area. Um, so this, this is certainly actionable at this point, but you were buying this earlier uh, and, and you prefer to buy earlier. You were mentioning how your metrics, uh, your post analysis has told you to be buying at the bottom of the cup. So are you buying as it's coming down or is there an element of strength that you're waiting for in the chart to kind of tell you, hey, you know, this, this is where the turning point could be? Um, specifically to buy stocks near the lows of the base or to buy on the right side of the base. Uh, I have a systematic or we have a systematic process that we follow for that. Mm -hmm. um, so simplicity would be like a fairly lengthy checklist so it just met everything all the identifiable metrics on that checklist to be able to go ahead and increase it's not a new purchase just it's right. just to increase our equity exposure towards this company um you know it's just at a thousand dollars today it's at 1500 i think it needs to consolidate for a little bit or even have a shakeout before it goes higher also we just had a large move and large cap and mega cap uh 
tech. So I think the market needs to cool off for a little bit. And given that we're in the summer months, you know, and a little bit away from the next quarter earnings, it, it might make sense for these companies to consolidate for several weeks before they move higher. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just to kind of wrap a little bow on this, um, you know, you, you mentioned how, again, you have all of these different factors um, and you've already talked a lot about, you know, the levers that it has to pull for, for earnings and the, the revenue growth potential. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that one of the things that you look at is the, is the TAM, the total addressable market. And um, for, for Shopify, what, what do you see there for the, the total addressable market besides the entire universe? Uh. Yeah, right. Well, it's like they're it's in their original S1 is they want to democratize small business. So anyone, any potential customer that wants to move their business online or even expand it online is a potential customer for Shopify. Um, so, you know, in terms of their, their total addressable market, it, it's fairly large. Then what you want to do is to like measure that as you take the TAM based off of the market share uh, to derive some of these, you know, revenue um, or to to uh, derive some of these uh, quantifiable metrics. So once you get the TAM based off the market share, then you can look into the revenue type uh, times the margin to get some of your EPS figures. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, I think the, the TAM on Shopify is just going to continue and continue to increase, especially on a global basis. Yeah. And again, that's, that's what you're looking at in terms of that runway and why you think even though this is up so much that it still has room to go. So let's go ahead and shift our focus onto another stock that um, we've been talking a lot about on IBD Live, and of course, this one, um, yeah, it's been around for a while, but it's uh, uh, really got a lot of attention during the pandemic. Uh, that's DocuSign, uh, ticker symbol DOCU. Yeah, so I think DocuSign's a little bit um, easier to get in terms of Shopify because I'm, I'm with you, Justin. I, most companies in my portfolio, you know, haven't went from like 40 to 1500 and you know, the <laughs> right. time like that, that actually scares me away. Yeah. Um, and I'm a growth investor. So I know if it scares me, it really scares everyone else too. Right. Um, so uh, I don't like that as much. I like to have some companies, you know, and it's based off the market cap. Shopify is like 175 uh, or close to $200 billion market cap. Whereas DocuSign is like, you know, in the 50 range. Right. So um I like to, yeah, like this is a new growth company. It's within the last several years. Uh, so it's an investing candidate. But basically DocuSign is, as we know, it's they're the leader in digital contracts um, and signatures, right? So no more fax machine or envi- environmental unfriendly. Fax machine, how oh, those. <laughs> Part, yeah, I mean, that's like a, where I, I like to think of things like historically today yeah. in the base case. Uh, within that or um, some type of empiricality around it. So yeah, right now it'd be, we're not going to, most bulge brackets are trying to minimize the way that they're printing out, you know, these hundreds and hundreds of page pitch decks and all these healthcare industries and all these things. So the COVID obviously uh, increased this and uh, made the use case for DocuSign more prevalent, but basically it's, you know, we're going to go back to like doing wet signatures for everything. Certain Certain industries, yes, but most industries like legal, real estate, you know, a large, large portion that could get away with it in the healthcare industry, they're going to be able to use um, dot, dot loop, which is a competitor of DocuSign or even DocuSign. Um, so I think they're going to continue to gain market share. I think it's being, I think the variant view of this, meaning what's the view that's non-consensus is that the general way the market's been perceiving DocuSign is what is going to, like, why is DocuSign exist? Can Adobe come in or Microsoft come in and just- Well, Adobe has a product. Yeah, exactly. Similar, right. right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so, 
this is the general thesis is um, uh, there's so many competitors to this, but yeah. uh, the general thesis was can't these companies come in and just, you know, capture all of DocuSign's market share. And that's why the stock, you know, consolidated initially in 19 for a, a period of time. But what we see this and we know this empirically is that sometimes there's a first mover's advantage. There's a right. first adopter's advantage and then there's brand recognition. It's kind of like Zoom right now. Team does, you know, just as well as Zoom, but Zoom, um, you know, with a lot of these universities, um, you know, and this is on a global basis, have adopted that. So that's kind of like the name brand recognition. So DocuSign really had a, uh, an advantage initially by being a first mover. And then now it's gaining market share by the popularity of brand recognition. So mm -hmm. um, in terms of like the TAM, it's obviously very large. The market opportunity, what's the problem that it solved? It solved a problem, uh, you know, no longer what uh, signatures or hard contracts going to, and moving to digitally. And it's also just like the efficiency and the way the entire world and internet is being adopted and used today. Um, it just fits in within that nicely. So, um, you know, on the short term basis, it had like an SUFB move from the bottom of the base. It's so that's uh, straight up from the bottom. Mm -hmm. Right. So it went from like one. 80 to 300 in a short period of time yeah. that's not sustainable. basically seven weeks up in a row and i mean there was there were some big you know some big weekly moves up there you know it wasn't right. it wasn't just inching up <laughs> yeah so on the short term that's we know that's definitely not sustainable nor do we want it to be so it needs to be able to consolidate uh the general you know probably assumption here is that it's going to move slightly higher into their earnings report. They're going to have a beat quarter and then the valuation becomes slightly more attractive. Uh, funds will get in and their analysts will raise uh, the price targets and estimates for the stock. And then the stock price will continue higher off to that if the market um, you know, has uh, the wind at its back for that. But uh, generally long-term views, yeah, DocuSign should be a strong performer. Uh, just in the short term, it's uh, made a large move in a short period of time. So it probably needs to consolidate just like uh, Shopify. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, the other thing that, uh, you know, for a lot of these pandemic type stocks that, you know, really had these moves um, that were very strong, um, you know, besides the competition potentially coming in, I guess some people are like, well, if people didn't, if people weren't, you know, coming over to this during the pandemic, you know, why would they now? Um, is, is there any, is there any, anything to that argument? Yeah, I think it's just more adoption, right? Mm -hmm. Is to be able to, and like the real estate industry, they're really big on dot loop. Um, in certain states and other states, there's more prevalent where DocuSign, a lot of this is, you know, somewhat controlled by regulatory constraints, especially on a global basis and industry and sector basis. So I think as they're um, going to gain more coverage in that respect, then the adoption and market share will follow. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, you, you mentioned global, because I guess, you know, a lot of times we get in this bubble of just thinking of, you know, things that are helping us. On, on the small scale, but I guess that's the other part of this is the, the global reach uh, potentially for DocuSign. S same thing with Shopify and that, right. um, you know, they could definitely pull different levers, not to get too into it, but you know, culturally it's hard for certain societies and environments to shift to certain things. So if uh, a, certain, uh, a certain part of the world is used to and accustomed to you know, using physical contracts, going to digital contracts rapidly might be a bit of a stretch, but there, there should be a slow adoption to that. And then within, the, even if the adoption is slow, that TAM just um, exponentially moves higher. So yeah, I think DocuSign is positioned well to take advantage of that.
Mm -hmm. Any other uh, key metrics? Because again, I know you have so many of them, but uh, any of the particular ones that you look at, uh, again, these are two com companies that you've done a deep dive on, but any other particular metrics that you think uh, are, are worth sharing? Yeah, a lot of these companies, I mean, it, it's a simple one, but basically it's just how many users and um, you know how many uh, agencies or, or merchants are using uh, the platform and how much revenue that they're generating on top of that. Uh, one thing with DocuSign and some of these other companies is you want to look at like the top 10 customer concentration and be able to, you know, correlate that with, through some expert uh, calls to see, you know, which large companies are using DocuSign and then to look at the adoption rate within that relative to, you know, what they could potentially use. And I think if you, you know, determine some of those things, which, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a deep dive to do that. But once you determine some of those things, you could say, okay, X company is only using DocuSign a small percentage relative to what they are. And mm -hmm. then if you look at their, you know, uh, customer list or, you know, to uh, reverse engineer some of those things, you could see that, you know, it's still just a very small percentage, very, very small percentage uh, of what is being used today. And again, that, that kind of makes the case for this still being early in its move when you have, uh, you know, companies that have started using it, but could be using it a lot much, uh, a lot more. And again, that adoption rate can, can be right. a huge thing. Um, I should also mention that uh, for people that are wanting some more information, um, Allie Corum did a recent interview with the CEO of DocuSign for her recent investing strategies. So that's something that people might want to check out. Uh, for some more information. But um, Jason, I got to say, I really appreciate you coming on being uh, your first time on the podcast with me. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I would I would highly recommend that people kind of maybe re-listen to this because you really pack a lot of information. And again, this is one of the things where uh, I always know that anytime I went to go visit you in the office back when you know we were in the office together, uh, you were always uh, reading very interesting things. Um, what's What's on your desk right now in terms of what you're reading? Yeah, the I guess right now it's I just started this one. It's a little bit of an old book, but it's the Paradox of Choice um, by Barry Schwartz, and uh, so far so good. Okay, very good. So I'll I'll maybe take a look at that. We'll start our own little investing book club. So, all right, <laughs> great. Well, thanks a lot for being on the show, and that's it for this week of investing with IBD. Uh, hope you join us next week. Thanks for listening. And for this week's notes and charts, make sure to go to investors.com slash podcast, where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. And make sure to subscribe, rate and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.